the law in Julian's case was constantly abrogated, top to bottom, conventions of asylum, human rights, due process and conspiracy, a plague of malice. Hello there and welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I've got a very special interview as I am joined by John and Gabriel Shipton who are Julian Assange's father and half-brother. They're here to give me an update on Julian's case as well as ask the Bitcoin community for help in raising funds to support his legal defence. I've also been joined in this interview by my friend Janine, who some of you will know very well. She is a fellow Bitcoiner, but also an esteemed journalist and is very familiar with the case. She is much better equipped than I am to deal with some of the specifics. So a big thanks to Janine for coming on to this interview and helping me. Now, I'm not going to be running any sponsor as today, as I'd like to focus you on supporting the case, for which we are also going to be donating $10,000 towards. Julian has been fighting for his freedom for over a decade, as the US government is trying to extradite him from the UK. If you would like to support the fund, then please do head over to supportassange.walland.de and I will spell that out. So that is supportassange, which is S-U-P-P-O-R-T-A-S-S-A-N-G-E dot Walland, which is W-A-U-L-A-N-D dot D-E. The link to that will be in the show notes and you can donate via Bitcoin, PayPal or wire transfers. Okay, on to the interview now. Uh, if you do have any questions regarding it, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you do want to listen to it, I did previously do an interview with John for my other show, Defiance, which is worth checking out. But yes, if you have any questions, please do feel free to reach out to me. John. Good to see you again. Well, I can't physically see you, but you know what I mean. Good to see you again. Are you well? Hi, Peter. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah, well, and uh, um, things have come a long way since we did that interview a couple of years ago. Yes, we've got a lot to catch up on. Gabriel, nice to meet you. We haven't uh, actually met before, but nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too, Peter. I'm a big fan of your show. Thank you. That's slightly surreal for me, uh, but thank you. We are joined by my good friend Janine, who is one of the best journalists I know, who is uh, an absolute expert on the case. She's followed it in great detail, uh, often encouraging me to cover it and sending me things I should be reading. So I asked her to join us today because I think it's important that we do the best job possible and she's just going to be able to add a lot more value. So welcome, Janine. Nice to finally actually have you on the show. Yeah, hello. Thanks for bringing me on. No problem. So we're here to talk about Julian, the situation with the case. Gabriel, just just... For uh, for us to get this kick started, I think it's best to outline what is it you want to get out of this interview today. What do you want from the people listening? Uh, yeah, so we just uh, we want to reach out to the Bitcoin community, um, you know, and, and just really ask them for help. Um, you know, Julian needs their help. He's one of their own, and we're trying to sort of raise a war chest to uh, fight the next step of the uh, the legal battle in the UK against the extradition to the US. Okay. Okay, so I think for a starting point, we should do a recap of uh, what the case is about, why this is a miscarriage of justice, because I think that there's a lot of people who are fully aware of Julian's plight, but they perhaps don't know the the specific details of what is happening here. Um, John, do, do you want to start this off? Do you, do you want to start by explaining what it is Julian is accused of and just give us a recap of why this is a, a, essentially a miscarriage of justice. Okay, uh, Julian's charged uh, from the US uh, 
1917 Espionage Act with 17 counts of espionage and one count of uh, computer intrusion. Um, in, in the the usual circumstance, accumulating charges like that results in a 175 years jail. Um, in the espionage court in the United States, nobody has ever been uh, acquitted. They're all guilty, every one of them. The consequence to the oppression and intimidation of journalism worldwide in the Western world is uh, easy to see as you don't see anybody revealing anything, well, really since uh, Edward Snowden. Um, further to that, the uh, crushing and destruction of the great attribute of the American Constitution, the First Amendment, allowing publication and freedom of speech, the crushing of that is dilatory throughout the Western world. They will all copy the United States in the treatment of Julian as they all copied the treatment uh, of uh, prisoners of war in Guantanamo when the United States abandoned the uh, Geneva Conventions of War and the treatment of prisoners. So that'll be the circumstance. Okay. Ginny, do you want to add anything in here in relation to the consideration of uh, uh, the impact of this on, on wider journalism and, and reporting? Um, well, I've actually, uh, as of, since 2019, uh, in April when he was arrested, I've actually been collecting lists of uh, journalists, journal media organizations, human rights organizations, making statements about how this would impact their field. And um, it's been pretty unanimous across the board, across countries around the world, that that they believe that this will make specifically national security reporting a lot harder um, because, you know, national security reporters have to deal with material like this all the time. Obviously, they don't publish it in the same way uh, that WikiLeaks does, which is that they don't uh, they don't allow the public um, a lot of the times to have access to the information as well. Um, or even a lot of the time, they instead of relying on source documents, they rely on special access to uh, government officials who may not be telling them the truth, and they often uh, have limited ways of verifying it. And so... If, if this is what's going to happen in the future to anyone who obtains uh, and obtaining national security information, not even classified information, just information that is pertinent to national security, if that's what's going to happen to anyone who receives um, or, or uses that kind of material to write stories, then this is going to affect a lot of investigative journalism around the world, especially given that, you know, he was not in the United States at the time of publication. He's not an American. Uh, WikiLeaks is not mostly based in the U.S. And so the fact that the U.S. can just come and tell a foreign journalist that they are not allowed to publish and that they are beholden to U.S. laws is really terrifying. And if we don't have the ability for journalists to be able to reveal or expose certain information, it essentially gives a shield to the US to engage in any acts internationally without any form of um, uh, kind of a, 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 like a public lens on what they're doing. And, and I guess that's the fear here. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, Eddie, you're already seeing it, uh, you know, 
the editorial boards of The Guardian, uh, Washington Post, they're, they're all putting out editorial now um, in support of Julian because they are seeing the effects of this prosecution. Um, they, you know, they have these national security articles or, or, or things that they want to publish about national security that, um, you know, they can't publish because they're looking at this prosecution and they say, well, if we publish this, um, you know, then we're going to end up with an espionage charge. And, and that's why they're, they're putting out, uh, you know, editorial columns in support of, um, in support of Julian and, and, and these charges being dropped. So, so it's a wider, wider issue than just Julian's own plight. There are other more severe uh, consequences should Julian be extradited and face trial in the US. Yes, in particular, you can see that, um, say, for example, how it reflects upon commentary upon Bitcoin, that they, uh, the United States and its organs will be able to direct commentary to suit itself. And uh, um, they use the tool of what I call judicial abductions to steal um, and oppress technology. For example, Mike Lynch uh, in, uh, in the UK, who's a, a tech uh, billionaire who invented uh, a particular way of manipulating information and um, CEO of Huawei, uh, Meng Wenzhou, uh, is uh, judicially abducted in Canada. Holobini, the same circumstance in Ecuador. So not only do uh, the United States use these mechanisms to oppress commentary on whatever circumstance it wishes to to, uh, oppress commentary, but also it guides the information that we receive to suit themselves. And in the case of uh, Bitcoin or any other coinage, any other new insight into how the dynamics of the internet work, it will just utilise those to their own advantage, disadvantaging us. Okay. Okay. So I want to find out a bit more about how it's going. Just before that, um, just how is Julian now? Uh, Obviously, uh, we had the January the 4th extradition was rejected, but you know, he's still, uh, his bail was also rejected. How How is he doing personally? Well, not the best, um, you know. They, they uh, in 23 hours a day in lockdown since last March, because the jail is infested with COVID, we last visited uh, Julian in March. He hasn't seen his lawyers in seven months now. They sit... Uh, in their jail cells um, and contemplate their their personal tragedy. Um, that's the circumstance. There are uh, allowed, since they have no visits at all, uh, a number of uh, phone calls depending upon whether they have uh, enough money to keep their accounts up to date. So if they ring me, it costs about uh, $20.00 each call. So if they have, a, if the prisoners have a flow of income into their telephone accounts, they can make these calls and keep some contact with the outside. Are they being prevented access from seeing people due to COVID restrictions? Yes, yes. The, the, the jail is in complete lockdown since uh, 
um, March, last March, they are able to see pastoral care. So a priest uh, can come and call by and say hello on occasion. Now, I'll give you an example uh, of that. Um, the Pope uh, Francis uh, said a, a prayer for Julian and passed that to the Vatican hierarchy. The Vatican hierarchy then passed that to the English Roman Catholic hierarchy who passed it to the local church and that uh, churchman local to Belmarsh, he went and saw the uh, jail priest and the jail priest uh, went and advised Julian that the uh, a prayer, the Pope had said a prayer for him in the Vatican. So consequently, the entire Catholic hierarchy in Italy and England is aware of the Pope's sympathies to Julian's circumstances. Right, okay. So whilst we have COVID restrictions on, uh, prisons are essentially in lockdown, so prisoners are being kept in their cells, unable to see family, friends and lawyers, but we have been able to find ways for TV companies to be able to make TV programs. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Gabrielle is the expert on that circumstance. Yeah, can you shed some light onto that, Gabriel? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, the jail system, it's, it's not, um, I, you know, it's not a nice place, mm -hmm. really. Uh, you know, it's not... Um, and, you know, it is dysfunctional, um, you know, but the, the jail system obviously in the U.S. is a lot worse. Um, it's, uh, you know, Julian was extradited uh, to the U.S. Uh, he would go into, you know, this sort of supermax prison where they keep El Chapo, um, which is basically a concrete, you know, box that you, you're basically buried in. Uh, you know, you don't know contact, no visitors. Uh, Call, you, I think you get one phone call a month uh, to family in that prison. So, you know, it, the U.S. is, is um, you know, and that's why the judge ruled that it'd be, um, ten, you know, it'd be uh, tantamount to a death penalty. He was, he, he was extradited and, and with those conditions. Right. Okay. Janine, can, can you just give a, a bit of an update specifically with regards to what the judgment was. Uh, I, I, we know it was rejected because it was a high suicide uh, risk, but the UK court did agree with the US charges. Uh, do you feel like that was some form of compromise or do you think it was just an accurate um, judgment? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of uh, the arguments that the defense made regarding that this was, that this was should be considered a protected journalistic activity there was also a number of technical arguments with technical experts regarding the feasibility of some of the U.S.'s claims about who did what and um, the degree to which they did certain things. And unfortunately, they were all rejected. The only arguments basically that the judge ended up accepting um, and, and she left them to kind of the bottom of the list as she was kind of reading out the judgment uh, is that there is a high, they, she believes there's a high risk of suicide and that the prison conditions in the U.S. are not, uh, they, basically they would not be able to 
protect him uh, to the degree that prisoners are protected at least from suicide or from, uh, for example, solitary confinement. And I do want to bring up briefly that um, while the current conditions in the prison are largely being affected by COVID restrictions, preventing people from, prisoners from visiting with their family members, unfortunately his solitary confinement in the prison actually preceded the uh, COVID-19 restrictions. He was already being held uh, often for 23 hours uh, up to that or longer in his cell prior to the pandemic. Um, that was his treatment before this. So I think anyone who who thinks that, you know, this is just something that prisons have to do because of COVID, that's not the case. And in fact, they were doing it before COVID. And uh, you know, people should be aware that according to the UN uh, standards, Having someone imprisoned uh, in their cell alone for 23 hours a day or more uh, is considered torture. That is solitary confinement. Actually, I think their standard is 22 hours or more a day without human contact. Um, that is considered that is considered torture, um, especially if it's done in excess of 15 consecutive days, which has been the case. So basically, you have an entire prison of people who are. Uh, in violation at the moment of the UN standards of how people should be treated. Well, is this specific uh, specifically that Julian was being kept uh, in his cell twenty three hours a day, or is it uh, is it uh, the condition of the prison itself? Well, it sounds like currently that's the condition of most of the prison, if not all of it. But, but um, pri- prior to but this, prior yes, to COVID. yeah, prior to COVID, he was often being kept for more than twenty three hours a day in his cell. But do we know why? What's why specifically him? Well, uh, I mean, the I think the first question should be why is he even in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison to begin with? Because, well, for example, mm-hmm. he literally just there's no excuse anymore because he has effectively won his case. Yes, there's an appeal going on, but he's won his case. Two, he was never charged with a violent crime. So the idea that you should have a nonviolent uh, a nonviolent prisoner in a maximum security prison that's usually reserved for, you know, terrorists uh, convicted or otherwise uh, is just it's absurd um, as a, as a basis. Uh, and then further than that, um, yes, I mean there are some arguments that because it's a national security case, then that warrants being. Uh, warrants him being held in a maximum security prison, but again, that doesn't justify why he should be why he should be given solitary confinement. Because uh, especially now with the ruling from the judge that this type of confinement is is literally it's not it's not ethical, it's not okay, and it puts him at risk of suicide. I don't. It makes no sense to me why they continue to treat him in the exact same way as they are supposedly fearing he will be treated in the U.S. Right. So it's hip, it's hypocritical. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, and whether whether the judgment is fair, um, I mean, we could we could spend a lot of time getting into the various conflicts of interests and uh, kind of biased statements that various judges in the UK involved in the case have made over the course of uh, his imprisonment since 2019. Um, but that would take quite a while. I would just say that I I do not believe in the judge's impartiality, and in fact, there have been. Uh, arguments made by the defense about uh, the extent to which that isn't the case, and unfortunately, those have not been accepted for some reason. Well, we we should get into that. Can can you give a summary as best you can? Uh, well, well, one of the kind of more disturbing elements uh, for me, uh, at least, was actually with one of the judges that he first saw after he got arrested, which was Judge Snow. 
And, uh, you know, he spent very, it was a very short hearing. It was right after he got arrested and there wasn't, uh, there wasn't much said. It was basically him being given the, what he was being charged with. And, uh, did he, did he plead guilty or not guilty or did he think he was guilty? And, uh, also given the extradition, did he consent or not to the extradition? And of course he didn't. And Judge Snow, uh, I believe called him a narcissist and various other words that, you know, a, a, for a judge who has not met him before, there was no trial. It was just a hearing for him to make those kinds of personal comments about someone was disturbing, which shows that they're, I feel like they're, given how high profile this case is, there's a lot of people, including in the judicial system, that have preconceived opinions about this case uh, and about him, uh, unfortunately. So that's colored their judgment. And then regarding the judges, um, actually, the the whole reason uh, or part of the reason we believe that um, the current judge for the case, or at least the one that presided over the um, the lower court with the extradition hearing in the last year, um, Vanessa Baritzer, uh, she actually came on because a previous judge was found to have a number of conflicts of interests uh, regarding not only her husband, but also her son. And uh, and some people may say, well, that's that's her family. It, what does that say about her? But actually, she had previously recused herself from a different case involving Uber in the UK, um, I think in 2017. And so there is a standard that if your family has financial conflicts of interest because you are part of that family, um, yes, you are your, you are an individual person, but that is part of the family's financial interest and therefore it affects you. And so she recused herself on that basis, but she didn't for this case, even though her husband and her son both have national security related uh, contacts and financial relationships and business relationships, and in fact have previously expressed statements uh, that were negative towards Julian. So, okay, do you want to add anything in there at all, Gabriel or John? Yes, uh, we we I was in Scotland doing a, an interview, and the fellow suggested that uh, we write a book about it, and the the book title would be a plague of malice. This. Uh, Calumny, mobbing, smearing has been going on for 11 years now. Um, and in particular, I can give you some uh, examples of uh, the judge's ruling, making the conclusion that this is a show trial. Um, so in these cases in the, the UK system, the due process requires that each side be equally armed. Um, Julian was in a glass box at the back of the court, and the glass box had slots in it um, about 30 millimetres wide, an inch and a half wide, and uh, a raised floor. Consequently, in order to speak to his uh, barrister and solicitor, Julian had to get on his knees and whisper through the the slot that the... Barrister on the other side had to stand on his or her tiptoes and put their ear to the slot in order to hear what Julian was saying. There was an appeal uh, by the uh, defence to move Julian into the well of the court where the American prosecutors were sitting alongside the UK prosecutors and passing notes easily and whispering instructions. The judge refused this, though, throughout the the three-week hearing, we had this uh, 
repeated farcical circumstances, quite wicked, really. And um, that was to illustrate that the judge and the uh, continued the malice that's uh, been displayed in this in in the persecution of Julian uh, all these years. Her uh, demeanour in in the in the court was to uh, Julian or his his uh, defence lawyers um, firm to the point of being uh, callous uh, and dismissive. Um, whereas the to the prosecution, she allowed the prosecution constant privileges of comment and interruption. So, you know, the the judgment of, of uh, Vanessa Baritza um, seems to me to fulfil the requirements of uh, the current executive, uh, um, uh, Boris Johnson, who is um, in. In the case of uh, um, McKinnon, Gary McKinnon, um, was active as Mayor of London in the defence against extradition of Gary McKinnon in 2006 as a Member of Parliament. He was active in the defence of David Birmingham in defence against extradition. In the case of Laurie Love as an MP, he was silent and made too helpful comments. Um, in the Prime Minister's question time in April last year, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's last question uh, as opposition leader on Julian Assange and the extradition treaty, um, uh, Prime Minister Johnson observed that the the treaty between the United States and the UK, the extradition treaty, was lopsided and made no adverse comment against Julian, which is an important change in the attitude of the executive to Julian. Previously, every opportunity the executive got, they would make some uh, comment, uh, you know, rather like he's got to face the music. That was PM Morrison or uh, Prime Minister May. Everybody's got to face the law as if Julian had avoided the law the law in Julian's case was constantly abrogated, top to bottom, conventions of asylum, human rights, due process and conspiracy between this Crown Prosecuting Service and the Swedish Prosecuting Authority, a plague of malice. Um, I know it's a very, very different case, but is there uh, any level of hypocrisy here in the case of Harry Dunn, where, um, I'm not sure if you were of this, but a, a lady named Anne Sekoulis, uh, uh was driving on the wrong side of the road and she uh, she ran over, uh, she knocked him off his motorbike and killed him and fled the country under diplomatic immunity, which she doesn't actually have. And there was an application for extradition for her to come back here and face trial is, is there any level of hypocrisy here? Are you aware of that case? Uh, um, you know, I'd like to comment that it, uh, it goes further than hypocrisy. Uh, it's a contempt for the because the United Kingdom did make request for uh, um, Anne Sekoulis, the murderer of Harry Dunn, to be returned to the UK. And the, that uh, request was ignored and then finally after some pressure contemptuously declined 
It's, it reverts to what Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson was concerned with, that the uh, extradition treaty uh, denies the United Kingdom its sovereignty. John, you know, I, I adore you and the work you're doing. I, I, I do have to just, like, challenge the use of the word murder murder yet because um, yeah, she hasn't I, faced yeah, trial. I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit... It, it's a yeah. little harsh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, it, it's um, it could be a, a manslaughter charge by uh, dangerous driving, yes. uh, but yes. but at the same yes. time, I, I mean, I think as a country and a nation, we feel like she should be extradited here to face trial for that because she was driving on the wrong side of the road, um, and the, the use of diplomatic immunity has, has now been proven to be wrong. But it does feel hypocritical. Are you yourself, Janine, aware of the case? And is there any relationship here? Because it does feel like uh, the US seems to feel like it has preferential treatment of its own citizens. Um, Yeah, I definitely do think that it is relevant. And in fact, I believe that, um, I can't remember when, I think it was last year, but at some point, uh, Harry Dunn's family actually did say that the UK shouldn't extradite Assange if the US isn't willing to extradite her. Um, but to me, I'm honestly not surprised because I feel like that case, uh, these two cases together and the different kind of results of them so far uh, has to do with the fact that the U.S. empire is top dog right now. It's not the U.K. Uh, anymore. It's not the British empire. Uh, and so the U.S. empire is does not feel like it's beholden to inter- the international rules uh, like this um, that would apply in this case. Uh, they've demonstrated that over the past two to three decades, at the very least. Um, you know, they're not they're not holding themselves accountable to the International Criminal Court with regards to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Uh, so they they basically the U.S. does not feel like it, it it should be held accountable to this, and therefore they don't have to act to extradite someone, even if there is uh, a relatively clear cut case uh, that some wrong was done. Again, hasn't faced trial, but also I find it disturbing that this is a case where someone died, whether it was intentional or accident, manslaughter, what have you. Uh, This was a case where someone died, like someone does have blood on their hands. And this term blood on their hands has been something that has been used against Julian repeatedly over the last decade. And yet... The, the people who are saying that are the people who do actually have the blood on their hands. They were the orchestrators of these illegal wars. And the whole uh, basis that WikiLeaks started on was to expose that these wars were illegal. Um, you know, after other whistleblowers who have done, done so before previously in the UK, even like Catherine Gunn, uh, that that was their basis on which they were publishing documents. So for these same orchestrators to then claim that uh, that a journalist who is exposing the blood on their hands also has blood on his own hands makes no sense, especially given that none of the charges against him have to do with, uh, in fact, one of the biggest points in the, the hearings was that the U.S. government did not present evidence of anyone who had come to harm. To like, They had these claims about people who might have had to flee or so. They didn't mention anyone specifically, and they certainly didn't bring any evidence that anyone had come to harm as there was as a result of any of the publications, which should have been eye-opening to people who have believed this claim that someone at WikiLeaks or Julian had blood on their hands this entire time. And, and you raised what uh, the parents of Harry Dunn said, and let's be clear, it's not like we agree and believe there should be some form of trade here. Uh, Anna Sekoulis should uh, be extradited to face trial right. uh, because of the legal grounding of that. 
and um, and Julian should not be extradited for different uh, legal groundings. Just so people are aware uh, of the detail again, uh, Janine, can you just talk a little bit about the kind of information that WikiLeaks was releasing, specifically, I think, with regards to the... I mean, I think the most famous uh, uh, information we saw was the... Was it the 12th of July Baghdad airstrike? Was it then? Uh, uh, It was specifically the targeting of journalists... um, and and also since then, I don't know if you've you've probably seen it, but we've had a, a pretty compelling BBC documentary regarding the Iraq War and um, uh, and its nature. So, can you talk about the kind of information that WikiLeaks was making public and why this is so important, especially on a journalistic level? Yeah, the the video that you're talking about is the famous uh, collateral murder video, which um, yeah, collateral murder. Yeah, I I mean I remember watching that when it came out, and it was uh, I mean still to this day I think a lot of people say this, but every time I watch it I get emotional because uh, it just because uh, many many of the people that I've uh, so beside, before I get into that um, the other things that were published uh, that concern the U.S. charges um, are the U.S diplomatic cables, and then Guantanamo Bay detainee files, uh, which again, uh, very, very important documents that show what was going on in Guantanamo and the fact that a lot of the people who get sent there are sent there on very shaky ground, basically uh, very little, if any, evidence that they have been involved in any criminal activity, let alone terrorist activity. Uh, A lot of them have since now died in prison uh, despite having no trial, um, despite in some cases even you know evidence being shown that they were innocent and still they are kept there uh, a lot of the time on the basis that because they have now been treated so horribly in Guantanamo, they are now a threat to the U.S. because they have justified anger about their treatment, their unfair treatment. Um, so that that's just that was mostly what the charges were focused on, but. The collateral murder video, um, I mean, the the U.S. prosecution kind of tried to argue that this wasn't about that and that video is not what he's being prosecuted for. And I think a lot of people disagree, including the defense. Um, And many of the people I've talked to uh, who've seen that, uh, whether or not they've seen that video, I think about it a lot. Because people often say that, you know, they, they can't advocate for Julian or they feel scared to because they have their children to think about. And every time I watch that video, I think, you know, because it wasn't just journalists. The, the, the men who were targeted in that, in that video, um, some of them, two of them were journalists. They ended up getting killed and there was also some uh, people with them. And they... Janine, can you just explain? Not everyone will have seen the video. I know some will, and we will. It is available, and I probably will include it in the show notes. But can you just specifically explain what happened in the video so people understand uh, the gravity of it, and and uh, specifically what was happening? Because we we heard uh, the voice recordings too. Yeah. So basically, the video. Uh, well, there's there's a shorter version and then there's an extended version. And the video basically shows a U.S. Apache helicopter um, hovering over some people just walking down the street in Baghdad. And you, uh, because there's uh, audio attached to it, you get to hear what these uh, people are saying to their their base and in the helicopter and uh, basically deciding. Uh, trying to get permission to shoot them. And they want to shoot them on the basis that they think that they have weapons, but 
the weapons ended up being um, cameras in the case of the journalists, and they were not in use at the time. They were just walking down the street. And so you hear this conversation about them getting permission to engage. They do. They they fire on this group of people. Um, most of them are killed. There are There's at least one survivor that you see in the video, and so he's struggling to move and crawling on the ground, and the soldiers are laughing and making jokes and kind of applauding each other for... It's it's like it's a video game. That's what a lot of people say, and I agree. It's like it's mm. people playing a video game and not realizing that these are actual human beings. And then unfortunately, or, well, unfortunately for them, uh, a... A van drives up, and it contains a father and his two children. And he gets out of his van to help this uh, one remaining person who is still alive, probably very badly injured. And then the helicopter gets permission to fire upon the van as well and also kills them. And uh, the children did survive. They were injured, and they actually get taken away by some American soldiers later on uh, who come up, come up, I think, with a tank. And unfortunately, the tank is, uh, you see in the video, it's like rolling over bodies. Um, and so the children are taken away. And the infamous comment from that video was that um, the, one of the soldiers says that the guy shouldn't have brought his children to a war or a battle. And that just makes me sick because for you know people who who often tell me that they they don't feel safe to talk about this case um uh i would because of you know they have children they have family and they don't want anyone to get hurt i would say uh don't you find it disgusting that you can't support an award winning award winning journalist for releasing material of this magnitude that exposed, you know, war crimes. Like, what don't you think it's disgusting that you can't support someone like that um, without fearing for your own life and also of your children? Why should your children be held accountable for anything that you do? And so I, it just makes me think, you know, the, this father, he did take a risk, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if something that he was thinking and the reason why he did it is because he didn't want his children to grow up in a world where they thought it was okay to leave, a, you know, an injured civilian bleeding on the street alone. Like, that's what I think for my children is whatever risk they may take, whatever risk I may take, um, I want them to fight for a world that doesn't accept that as normal. Yeah. John, John, I'm sure you're going to have a, a, a very strong response to this, but specifically, can you just talk about, therefore, why it is so important for someone like Julian to be able to release certain information like this and for journalists to be able to report on information like this, uh, specifically uh, with regards to not just US uh, and, and their kind of global well-policed empire, um, but also uh, holding all governments to account with regards to um, uh, uh, what may happen, what they may call national security, what we may call something that that, that is actually uh, outright uh, a, a scandal. Well, um, that's a good, very, very good question. Um, I start by saying that the, in the cables released, what they call cable game, there was one particular cable from the uh, American uh, ambassador to the Department of State, which described the situation where uh, American soldiers in 2006, uh, a, a bit of a preamble, 
these releases can stop wars, okay? So to make that really clear to everybody who reads and who every, and those who release the, um, these state secrets or, you know, heinous crimes, they can stop wars. So in 2006, a group of American soldiers went to a house and uh, murdered all of the occupants, the mum and dad and the kids and the uncles and grandfathers, all of them. And to disguise their crime, they called in an airstrike and obliterated the circumstance, the house and the remains of that family. This was in the cables. And upon the release of those cables, the Iraqi government, the parliament, read that and had the courage to declare, to refuse to sign a status of forces agreement with the United States. So the United States had to remove all of its soldiers from Iraq, so thus stopping a war. Similarly, there's uh, other circumstances in the cables where enabled the uh, uh, Chagos Islanders who had been dispossessed by the United Kingdom in order for the United Kingdom to give one of the islands to the United States to establish an airbase called Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. Um, that this enabled the Chagos Islanders to take a case to the International Court of Justice and the ruling was made on their behalf that the United Kingdom must recompense them and return the island. So these are two profound examples of what the meaning of these releases are and the results and the that can come from uh, publication of truthful information and holding in a library for uh, future people to research and, and embark upon court cases to write. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Gabriel, just want to go back a touch and, and get back into a little bit more on the specifics of the case. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about the problems that the Department of Justice had under Obama uh, with the prosecution because of the New York Times problem and where there's a, another level of hypocrisy in this. Yeah, so, uh, you know, under, under Obama, the sort of independent uh, DOJ uh, found that they couldn't pursue um, pursue these espionage charges against Julian because of what they called the, the uh, New York Times problem, which was that if they prosecute Julian... Uh, under the Espionage Act, that they would then have to prosecute uh, the New York Times or, or the Washington Post or, or, or the other media organisations that um, published uh, the same things that, that uh, WikiLeaks did. So there was the New York Times problem under the DOJ, and then at uh, the end of his presidency, Obama sent an even an even clearer message by commuting uh, Chelsea Manning's sentence. Now Chelsea Manning was the actual um, the leaker of, of um, what Julian is now being charged for under the Espionage Act. Seems to have lost Gabriel then. Uh, do you, do you, can you carry that on, John? 
Yeah, yes, uh, the the Obama administration um, was very reluctant to go uh, ahead with uh, this uh, prosecution, and to the extent that two of the senior prosecutors of the Department of Justice resigned when uh, Attorney General William Barr decided to pursued uh, the prosecution. Uh, they, William Barr was uh, an attorney uh, under the Bush administration and he was known, the nickname in the Department of Justice, as the Snatcher, for he was had a particular capacity to manipulate the laws in order to extradite people to the United States that the United States had taken a dislike to. Um, the uh, current administration under the new Attorney General Merrick Garland is known as a defender of the uh, of the First Amendment. So uh, we look to Merrick Garland to again defend the uh, the First Amendment against the attacks of uh, William Barr and the remnants of the uh, Trump administration still existing in the Department of Justice. Okay, thank you. Okay, Jenny, what, what is the current uh, situation with the case right now? What is the next uh, important dates? What, what are we looking forward to next? I don't mean looking forward to as in uh, with any form of excitement, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, so um, actually, I believe it's today. Uh, there is supposed to be a submission, uh, or no, it was, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. Um, there's supposed to be a submission by the defense team uh, responding to the appeal by the U.S. government on why the extradition should be granted. But uh, I think at this point, they haven't yet scheduled any further dates in terms of the hearings in the high court to then make a decision again on those appeal submissions. So uh, as far as I'm aware, I don't know if there are any dates at this point, but the the hearings should happen in the next couple of months, I suspect, um, given the case. Uh, Can I add to that a little bit? Um, Yeah, of course. Please do, John. The defence was given a week's extension until the 7th to submit their the defence submissions. Um, and after that, the uh, they will be considered and given to the prosecution and the High Court sitting as a single judge will decide whether the defence appeal can be heard. And that will take some months. Right. Okay. And if the uh, if they are not granted the right to appeal, is that the final step? And will Julian be released? No. That. that uh, oh, yes. Of course. Yes. Yes. That they yeah. may appeal again to the Supreme Court. So the United States may, uh, uh, if they fail in the High Court, then they may appeal to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And and I guess we fear uh, back. Uh, door leverage and pressure being applied at the top levels of government. I'm guessing that's because historically, yeah, this case has been a pretty poor example of uh, the UK justice system and the influence of politicians. Uh, 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 is that something you guys are fearing? Uh, no, with the current executive, uh, Prime Minister Johnson, he's clearly unsympathetic to the extradition process and neutral as far neutral to helpful as far as Julian's concerned. Whether this can overwhelm the 
uh, momentum in the Foreign and Colonial Office and the Crown Prosecuting Service, I don't know. But um, I, I take the positives where I can get them. Okay. Janine, we, we're going to also discuss uh, a little bit more about the relationship between Bitcoin and WikiLeaks. And, and you know, we want this uh, episode of this show to kind of uh, appeal to Bitcoiners to support and help the case. But is, is there any specific parts of the case itself we've not covered yet that you think still should be raised or that you'd like to discuss? Well, I mean, there there are many parts I would like to discuss, uh, but it would probably take up an entire episode. So uh, unless John or Gabriel think that there's something that hasn't been brought up yet. Uh, I think I think Gabriel was about to add something in here. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, appeals, appeals uh, you know, are usually heard in these cases. So, you know, we expect... We expect the um, the appeal to be heard, uh, you know, as early as May, but as late, you know, it, but definitely before the summer break. But you know, there is a decision coming up whether to hear the appeal or not. But uh, it's likely, and they usually decide to hear appeals at the High Court on extradition cases. Okay, all right. So we should talk a little bit now about um, the uh, relationship between WikiLeaks and Bitcoin. Um, so. Gabriel, do, do you want to do you want to give the background here to um, when uh, WikiLeaks uh, sources of funding were essentially censored by all major payment rails, and how Bitcoin became uh, the, the essentially a savior for WikiLeaks funding? Yeah, so it was um, back in 2010. You know, d- during the time when all these um, you know releases were coming out of the Afghan war logs and 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 the Iraq war war logs that. Um, you know, there was under there was a big banking bl- blockade basically put in place, and under you know immense political pressure, uh, the Visa cut off payments, Mastercard cut off payments, PayPal uh, closed its accounts. Um, you know, Julian even had his personal accounts closed. Um, you know, under that, that, that's how intense the political pressure was here. So, um, you know, the the US government were trying to starve WikiLeaks. You know, start financially start WikiLeaks, basically. Uh, so, you know, the obvious alternative at that time was Bitcoin, which was just, you know, basically in a in very early, early stages. And and I think there was a lot of chatter on, on the Bitcoin forums about, you know, should WikiLeaks, you know, adopt Bitcoin or is it too early? And, uh, you know, even Satoshi himself chimed in, um, you know, Sort of pleading with WikiLeaks not not to um, not to adopt Bitcoin just yet because it was still in the beta stage and and, and it wouldn't be able to um, you know withstand the pressure that was being uh, applied to WikiLeaks. So Julian and WikiLeaks at that stage decided to hold off, um, which was in 2010. They held off uh, adopting WikiLeaks in time to sort of mature and. Then in June 2011, they converted and their finances to WikiLeaks uh, to Bitcoin, sorry, and um, you know started using Bitcoin as their as their sort of you know it was their currency basically. Their operating cash was was uh, Bitcoin, and um, using Bitcoin, they were able to uh, survive the banking blockade, fight uh, legal fights in jurisdictions all around the world. Um, paid their day-to-day bills, you know, what it kept to take their servers up, publishing, etc. 
And, you know, it was the sort of uh, first real uh, use cases, Bitcoin, you know, really as, you know, freedom, freedom of speech money, right? Like they, uh, it couldn't be, couldn't be shut down by, you know, the sort of institutional powers. Okay. Uh, Janine, whilst uh, this show is going out to, on my Bitcoin show, and there's lots of Bitcoiners listening, I, I, I'm almost certain that this show will be shared a little bit wider to people who maybe um, don't listen to the show regularly because they'd be really interested to hear uh, about the case and hear from John and Gabriel. So should we just do a very brief explanation of why uh, Bitcoin as a technology was able to uh, solve financing problems for uh, WikiLeaks, uh, specifically what what it is that is unique about Bitcoin that enables that. Yeah, um, I mean, and I first want to say, actually, uh, the reason that I got into Bitcoin was because of um, the Cypherpunks book, Cypherpunks Freedom and the Future of the Internet by Julian and various other authors. Um because they actually talk about Bitcoin at that point and how it helped them get through the banking blockade. And that's how I first remember. Um, I think I might have heard about Bitcoin before then, but that's how I remember really getting interested in it was once I heard about it through that book. And uh, I mean, I think the reason is because, you know, as you've discussed probably over all of your shows, uh, Bitcoin is decentralized. And that also helps it be censorship resistant. And um, that is not something that you find in basically uh, any financial system except for maybe cash. So, I mean, that's why I became interested in it, because uh, at the time I was already wanting to be a journalist. And uh, the idea that, you know, my bank account could get shut down um, in retaliation for me publishing something that someone didn't want me to publish, whether it was the bank, whether it was someone putting pressure on the bank, that always interested me. And so, um, I, I mean, I do... I do find it interesting that even though it's been over 10 years now since Satoshi, because um, Satoshi actually predicted that WikiLeaks would not stand to get more than pocket change. Uh, that's exactly what they said in the in the uh, Bitcoin talk forum about this. Um, and that ended up being completely false. Uh, in t- 2017, um, Julian actually said on Twitter that uh, he actually thanked the U.S. government for the blockade because um, that basically uh, instigated them into adopting Bitcoin. And I think he said they made a, fi- I think it was like 50,000% return or some absurd <laughs> some absurd gain. So they did really well out of that. Um, I also think that you know, part of the reason they adopted it is because Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin and WikiLeaks both come from you know the cypherpunk tradition, um, at least the thought processes and values that were fostered there, and so. Um, he was interested in it very early on for that reason. Um, the cypherpunks in general, as you've probably talked about before, have been interested in digital currency for a long time, and there have been many attempts, and Bitcoin was the most successful attempt uh, because there have been previous attempts that have been taken down by the U.S. government and other entities because they were centralized, and Bitcoin was so far the first example where that hasn't been the case, and it has survived, uh, as WikiLeaks has for over 10 years now. Um, and yet I still get people telling me that you know they that they don't want to talk about WikiLeaks or anything as Bitcoiners because they think that that will that will 
potentially hurt Bitcoin. And I just think, well, Bitcoin was so much weaker 10 years ago and that didn't happen. What are, what are you still afraid of? Um, I, I feel like if, if, if as Bitcoiners, if you care about this case and you think you can't, but you think you can't talk about it, um, then maybe you don't have as much confidence in Bitcoin as you thought because this, is, this was a real test for it and so far it's working. That's a very, very fair point. And also, thank you, Gabriel and John, because you have uh, provided us with this uh, unique audio clip of Julian explaining Bitcoin to Eric Schmidt from Google. So that's fantastic. We're going to share that as part of the audio. Okay, so Bitcoin is something that evolved out um, of the cypherpunks a couple of years ago. And so it's an alternative to stateless currency. There's been innovations along these lines in many different paths of digital currencies, anonymous, untraceable, etc. Um, people have been experimenting with over the past 20 years. But Bitcoin actually has the balance and incentives right, and that's why it started to take off. There's been different combinations of things. No central nodes. It's all point to point. One does not need to trust any central mint. The, the problems with traditional digital currencies on the internet is that you have to trust the mint not to print too much of it. And the incentives and the incentives for the mint to keep printing are pretty high, actually, because you can print free money. Okay, let's talk specifically about how people can actually help. Now, what, Gabriel, what is it specifically right now that you want people to do? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I guess the, uh, the easiest way a lot of people can help is, you know, by donating, basically. Um, you know, we have a donation address set up they can donate through the wow holland foundation in in germany they can donate bitcoin there's a bitcoin address there that they can um you know send uh send bitcoin to i can do it i can read the address out it's oh, maybe i'll post the address you can put the address in the show notes we'll, we'll do um, both so we, we have nothing see. to lose okay it's uh well uh, it's well uh, it's wow land so w-a-u-l-a-n-d dot d-e forward slash en forward slash donate forward slash moral dash courage forward slash hash 77. Okay, we will put that. So that is, we'll, that's... Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit of a mouthful. Okay, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I'm guessing that the, these legal costs are probably running into exorbitant amounts, like millions and millions, so uh, as much help as... Uh, people can give just from my side uh, to help i'm i'm not going to run any ads in this show normally i have ads in my show i'm not going to run any ads in this show apart from sp- uh, a specific ad to support this and uh we we will also like uh, the show will make a um, 10,000 dollar uh, contribution to your legal funds so um yeah we will we've been holding uh, bitcoin as part of the show so um once the show goes out, I'll get the address and we'll make a donation as well. I'll push it on Twitter. Uh, I will push it on every f- uh, format uh, we have and try and uh, help you with the fundraising as best as possible. Is there, is there anything else? No worries. Is there anything else you want to add b- before we close out uh, yourself, Gabe? Yeah, I want to. There's, um, you know, I just thought I'd, there's another sort of uh, an interesting way that people can contribute is there's a art and it's not an NFT auction. It's a Bitcoin art auction um, by Pascal, uh, Pascal Boyd on um, scarcity. So that's uh, S C A R C E dot C I T Y. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a portrait of Julian that's made out of 
uh, ripped up US dollars. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's quite a fun, it's quite a fun uh, piece of art and, and you can um, bid uh, through the Lightning Network or, or with, uh, Bitcoin uh, for that. Janine, anything you want to add before we close out? Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to say again to Bitcoiners who uh, still have uh, Satoshi's fears, um, if because you know Bitcoiners like to talk about you know the their enemies in the in the financial system globally. Uh, one of them is the IMF, and uh, there has actually been quite. Uh, a lot published in, for example, the WikiLeaks files about the role of the IMF uh, in as a geopolitical tool and even as a as a tool of war. Um, there's there's a number of uh, parts in the WikiLeaks files on that that was published in 2015. Um, and so I think in order to have journalism that is sustainable and can resist these kinds of attacks. Um, you know, Bitcoin is very important for that, but we also need to, like, mm. it can't just be Bitcoin. We also have to change our own behavior in how we think of money, how we use money, and the kinds of uh, initiatives and organizations that we support. And if they don't support freedom of transaction as they do freedom of speech, then what's the point? All right. Okay, John, Gabriel, listen, thank you for coming on. Uh, you have a permanent, uh, open, free invite to use uh, this podcast, this show, as ever you need it. Just reach out uh, to myself and you can come on and, uh, yeah, it's permanently open for you. Um, anyone listening, please do check out the full list of show notes. Please do make a donation. If you can, please share this out to everyone else. Um all the best, Gabriel, John. Hopefully, uh, at some point, um, uh, we'll get to see you in London and, and catch up in person. Uh, and Janine, just a big thank you for coming on and supporting me with this. Uh, uh, this this level of conversation is, is beyond my personal journalistic skills. So having you on with with uh, your experience and expertise has, has really made this show infinitely better than it would be with me on my own. So, yeah, thank you, everyone. Take care, and I'll, I'll see you all soon. So thank, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Janine. Thank, thank you, you, Gabriel. Thank you. Okay, so this is a pretty big topic, pretty heavy topic. But Julian Assange has become a figurehead for the pursuit of truth and holding governments and powerful organisations accountable. And his history and values are closely aligned with Bitcoin. If you're not aware of the history of WikiLeaks, they were essentially financially deplatformed by Visa, Mastercard and PayPal. They were unable to accept donations via these payment rails. So at one point they actually had to switch over to accepting Bitcoin. So it would be really good to see the Bitcoin community to come together and support his defense. As I said in the intro, we're going to be making a $10,000 donation towards it. And we've also not included any sponsor ads in this show just to focus on the defense. So if you do want to support it, please head over to supportassange.walland.de, which is S-U-P-P-O-R-T-A-S-S-A-N-G dot Walland, which is W-A-U-L-A-N-D dot D-E. And as I said, these are all in the show notes. And also, if you do want to follow updates on the case, then you can follow Julian's fiance. She's on Twitter, so you can follow her at Stella Morris One, which is at S T E L L A M O R I S One. 
And if you'd like to purchase any of Julian's books, we have added links to that in the show notes as well. Also, if you want to reach out to me, please feel free. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do want to thank Gabriel and John for coming onto the show, but also just a big thanks to Janine for joining me. When they reached out and they wanted to do the interview, I knew I wanted someone who was better equipped to actually deal with the details of the case. I've spoken to Janine a lot in the past about it. You know, She is much closer to it and much better equipped than I am. So thank you, Janine. Thanks for joining me for this. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the interview. As I said, all links to making donations are in the show notes. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. 